Well, this morning, um, I want us to divide into two groups. There are really two kinds of people in this room. First of all, there are those who are the takeoffs, and then there are those who are the leave-ons. The takeoffs are those who, when they enter their home, take off their shoes. There are those, other people, who when they enter their home, they leave on their shoes. Now, we don't need a you know, show of hands here to kind of know who's more spiritual than the other, whichever way that might be. Um, when I was in ministry in Buffalo, New York, I was a youth pastor, but I also did stuff with uh, the singles that were there. This is many years ago. Um, and one of the guys who was a single, uh, his name was Paul. And um, he just, he wanted to make friends with people and, and make, you know, uh, build relationships with others. And so we were talking about how to do that. And I said, well, you know, you have an apartment. Why don't you just invite some people over to your house for dinner? I thought it was a pretty good idea. Maybe you can have like, you know, watch a movie or something like that afterwards. And he, he kind of responded, you know, in a reluctant way. And in his mind, that was a very, very bad idea. So I pressed it a little further, and I said, Paul, what's, what's the issue here? Why, why wouldn't you not want to do this? He says, well, I, I've had other people come over to my apartment before, and it didn't turn out very well. And so I asked him why. He said, well, because they wouldn't take their shoes off. So I said to him, listen, if I come to your house, I'll take my shoes off. And so I went to his, his apartment, and I, I took my shoes off. But there was this one little, small, little square area where the shoes had to stay. And I started to walk into his apartment. And literally, I was worried that I was going to leave, like, you know, impressions in the carpet and that he would be upset with it. You know, he was an, an uber-neat freak. Now, I share those little stories with you simply because we are a culture um, that is com considerably different than the text that we have here. I remember uh, going to, to Russia, and we have uh, some of our Russian friends who are here, but one of the, the things about, about Russia is that they are very much a slipper society. That doesn't mean they're wearing slippers all over the place. It means that when you enter the house, you take your shoes off, and there's you know, baskets or shelves full of slippers, and it really doesn't matter which ones you take. You just grab some slippers and put them on, and you go into the house. In Jesus' day, and in the context that we have in this particular passage, we have this picture of foot washing. And this picture of foot washing is somewhat strange to, to us who uh, typically wear shoes that are completely covered. Um, in their culture, when someone left the house in sandals, they're walking on dirty streets, and they're entering into a home, and they have dirty feet. So in their culture, foot washing made sense. Just like in our culture, taking our shoes off when we enter someone's home um, also makes sense. But in that Judean culture, when you entered a home, the servants would wash your feet. Now, that's what was going on um, with this whole thing of foot washing. It was a common cultural practice it was something that wasn't just unique to this situation. When people opened up their homes, this is what they did. One of the things that took place was you allowed your slave or your servant to uh, wash their feet. It was an expression of hospitality. It was what, what took place before the meal. But very significantly, it was never done by a peer. It was always slaves. And actually, if you take it a little further, 
if there were any Gentile slaves in the home, the Jewish slaves were not allowed to wash the feet. It always had to be the Gentiles because it was such a menial task. All right? So to, to be a person who is washing someone's feet is to do a task that is the lowest task, so to speak, culturally speaking. This is what, what only the lowest of the low will actually do. So the example that Jesus gives us in this passage, although it's been interpreted by many through the years as being somewhat of a ceremony for us to follow, on the same level as baptism or the Lord's Supper, upon further or closer study, you'll find that what Jesus is talking here is not so much about the ceremony of foot washing, but the attitude behind the foot washing. So you may go into some church, it could be a Protestant church, there's some Protestant churches that practice foot washing. In fact, I think it's very prevalent among the Free Will Baptist Church. It's one of their one of their practices. They wouldn't consider it necessarily the same thing as baptism of the Lord's Supper, but it certainly is, is up there. And they would have foot washing services where you would come to church and have people wash your feet. But let's just do it now, right? Socks off. Yeah, you look shock, right? Ah, oh, they're going to see my feet and they're all dirty or whatever, right? No, it, it's really kind of strange to us. But there are those that practice it, but the, the scriptures never teach this as an ordinance or a ceremony or a ritual for us to follow. What Jesus ultimately is communicating here is an attitude, a heart attitude that he wants his disciples and he wants his followers to have. So, there are going to be, in this passage, three foot washing lessons. Jesus is humbling himself to wash his disciples' feet in order to teach them three important truths. Let me give you just the basic word that goes with it to teach them about love, to teach them, teach them about life, and to teach them about living. About love, the fact that we are love, about life, the fact that we have life, and about living. We are to live our lives in a particular way is what he is going to be saying. So let's, let's begin at this first one. And uh, I'm saying it this way, the love that comes from Jesus. In this story, as these events take place, what we see is this love that ultimately comes from Jesus to the disciples. This foot washing is an expression of that love. But there is a setting that is taking place here that we must look at a little bit. And just a few words to, to kind of glean from the passage as we, as we read here. Verses 1 and 3, we're told here that, that, that Jesus' departure, his hour was, was, uh, had, had come. It was time for him to be thinking about the fact that he was leaving. So there is this context, there is this, this mindset, this, this atmosphere, so to speak, that is, 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 uh, in which this foot washing is set. Secondly, there's this whole... Um, concept and reality of betrayal. All right, Judas is mentioned here. You know, the devil is mentioned here, putting something into the heart of Judas. And then even talking about them being clean, but not all of you are clean. Well, that's a reference back to Judas again. So there's this betrayal reality that is all part of this greater context. And then you could even say um, this, this picture of garments in verses 4 and verse 12. Jesus taking off his outer garments, and then when he's done with the foot washing, he puts his garments back on. And just a reminder that Jesus uh, took off his heavenly garments, humbled himself, came to this earth, and ultimately 
going back into heaven, reestablishes those garments. And we'll, we'll look a little bit at that. But there's, there's all these kind of contextual things that are taking place. Now, the order uh, of, of how John lays things out is maybe a little different than some of the other Gospels. This is taking place, I mean, just maybe hours before Jesus is taken and brought before Pilate. And, and not soon after is it going to be where Jesus is hung on the cross. So this is really late in the game. This is late in the story. Right? John is not writing chronologically, he's writing more thematically, and uh, here he's focusing now on the disciples and Jesus' interaction with the disciples before the action, actual passion or the suffering takes place. Now, verses 1 through 5 are really kind of one long sentence. So I want to give us the nutshell of what that sentence is. All right, and here is it. Here it is. Now, before the feast of the Passover, during supper... Jesus rose to wash his disciples' feet. That's the, I want to say, the sentence that's going on uh, through this, these few verses here. But there's, there's all sorts of stuff mixed in there. Just kind of giving us a picture, giving us an awareness of the setting, of the context, of, of what is happening, um, and why Jesus is stepping in and washing his disciples' feet. So let's notice, first of all, it was before the Passover feast. Verse 1, now before the Passover, or the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to, be, uh, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the hour of Jesus' death and exaltation was near. His time to depart was now, and here we are introduced to what motivates Jesus concerning his children, and it is his love. Notice what it says then, having loved his own who were in the world. Jesus is known by his love, but there's some things that we need to learn now about the love of Jesus that are revealed in verses 1 through 5. First of all, his love is an exclusive love. Now, here we're told about the love that is expressed specifically to his own who were in the world. John 3.16 talks about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you have this broad kind of general love, but you have this subset. Those who believe and the ones that are Believers now, in this passage, are described as the ones whom Jesus loved. Having loved his own who were in the world. So this is an exclusive love to those who are his own. It's a subset of the world. It's a, talking about those who have been taken out of the world. Now here's how it's described in the Gospel of John, just going back as we study through this Gospel, here are different ways that, that these people are described. They are his sheep who hear his voice. They are those who have been satisfied by the bread of life. They are those whose thirst has been quenched by the rivers of living water, whose lives have been eternally changed by the light of the world. Those who have come out of blindness and now can see. Those who have come out of darkness and are experiencing light. They're the ones who truly believe. Not the superficial belief that was just focusing on, on the signs and, and the miraculous stuff, but those who actually came to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah on his terms, not on their terms. These are the ones who are the object of his love. His love is exclusive. Now, friends, we must understand that. 
Because just to say that Jesus loved the world and leave it there means that everything now that has happened means that everyone in the world are the objects of his love. Therefore, they're all part of the kingdom. That is not what the Gospels teach. There, are, there is a subset here of people who are directly the object of his love, and that is what is going on here. Secondly, it's an extensive love, an extensive love. Jesus loved them to the end, it says. And that Greek word end is the Greek word telos, and it means perfection, it means completion, and it signifies that Jesus loves his own with the fullest measure of love. Let's just think through this. First of all, it's talking about his end. It speaks of his love extending to the end of his life or his work on the cross when he says those words, it is what? Finished. That is the end. And he's loving them to the end. When he's carrying that cross to Golgotha, he is working toward the end. He's working toward that place where he can say before God to Talisthai, which is, it is finished. So it's talking about his end, but it's also talking about the disciples' end. It speaks of his ongoing love in their lives until they are called to be with him in glory. Now, Philippians 1.6, a very, very um, familiar passage, but one that we hold, hold dear, tells us um, something about that same attitude. He who began a good work in you will what? Be faithful to complete it. Right? So it's talking about your end. He's going to finish the job with them. The third way we can look at this also is to the very end, the ends of the ends, without end. The idea here is the, the forever. So when he says he loves them to the end, he's loving them to the extent of I'm going to finish my work on the cross, I'm going to finish my work in you, and I'm going to continue to push things to the end, to the end of ends. His love is extensive. It goes on and on and on, in particular, to those who are his own. The third thing we see here about his love, it is an expressive love, an expressive love. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. Now this expression of love comes before the Passover feast and also during supper. Notice verse 2, during supper. When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So here we clearly see what Jesus knows. Three things that were told here that Jesus knows. He knows that the devil is at work through Judas to betray him. So, I mean, as Jesus is doing this, these are the things that he knows. He knows the devil is at work through Judas to betray him. Secondly, he knows that he has been given all things by his Father. He's been given authority. He's been given uh, these, these who are his own from the Father. We saw that earlier in the chapters in, in John's Gospel. He also knows here that it's time to depart, to go to his death. But now he stoops in humility to wash his disciples' feet. Get this. The one whose father had put all things into his hand turns to his disciples with towels and a basin. Just, just get the picture of this. This one who is 
who is God from heaven come down, who has come incarnate, taken on the, the form of man, now stoops even further with a towel and a basin to wash his disciples' feet. So here we have a picture of Jesus the servant. And John gives us six details. Six details of his loving humility toward his disciples. And it's almost like they're in slow motion. It's like they're in freeze frame. Just as we, as we read through these, these descriptions of Jesus and uh, his washing of their feet, just think of, of these as like separate little frames along the story. First of all, he rose from supper. Now let's get the picture here. They would recline at a table. The table would be in the middle and they would be leaning on an elbow with their feet stretched out all around. So all the disciples are laid around like that and Jesus gets up. The disciples are still laying down. So he's rising up from the table. What's next? He laid aside his outer garments. So the garments that he had on, the outer garments, he lays them aside. And what that is a picture of is he's now in the garments of a servant, of a slave. Okay? Second or third here, he takes a towel and ties it around his waist. And this is Jesus moving from this master to slave role. The fourth thing, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, the fifth thing there, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So it's just like, here's just one little picture. He's doing this. He's doing another thing. He's doing another thing. Just slowly kind of being presented to us. It's not just like, oh, Jesus just washed their feet. You, you just see him kind of getting up, taking his robe off, wrapping a towel, you know, getting the, pouring the water in. It's just, they're seeing all this taking place. Now, of course, you're thinking, probably as you're reading through this, why isn't one of the disciples standing up and saying, no, you're not going to do that right now. I should be doing it. We'll find out why in a little bit. Here we have love's, love's expression for all the disciples to see. It's a picture of what is going on in the heart of our Savior as it was all born out of love for his disciples. Now this is further explained for us in a very familiar passage in Philippians chapter 2. So turn, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 2. Here, here we have, again, the, the picture of Jesus in heaven and the picture of Jesus on the earth and how, how we get from one to the other. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Now Paul is, is arguing a case to have the mind of Christ. But in doing that, he gives us an awareness of what happened with Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So we have G Jesus in heaven with the garments of heaven, now taking on the, himself the form of a servant, having the garments of servitude, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So Jesus in heaven willfully sets aside his divine attributes to some degree, takes on himself the form of a servant, of man. We call that the incarnation. 
and he humbles himself to be here on this earth with us. But that's not enough. We're told here, not only does he do that, but he is willing to go to a cross and die, even death on a cross. So even in the picture here of of this foot washing, we have a picture that is pointing us to something. It's pointing us to the cross. So we have the love that comes from Jesus. Next, I want us to see the life that is found in Jesus. We're talking here about real life, eternal life, abundant life, spiritual life that is found in Jesus. You're not going to find spiritual life any other place, true spiritual life, except in Jesus. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who, was, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, you're not going to wash my feet. What are you doing? Lord, you will not wash my feet. Peter was, of course, used to telling Jesus what to do, right? And then regretting it. That was a pretty common thing as far as Peter is concerned. His his impulse and passion here are just clearly on display again. But Jesus now instructs him. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Does that sound familiar? As we have been studying through the Gospel of John, there's been a number of occasions where we, we get this wonderful picture that John gives us that something's going on and he kind of puts this little side information that ah, they didn't understand it then. But later, after Jesus is glorified, then they begin to understand it. So John chapter 2 is one example of that. Um, when Jesus is there uh, destroying the temple, or I should say cleaning the temple out, he talks about destroying the temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And we find in John, 20, uh, John chapter 2, verse 22, here's, here's what John records. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus has spoken. And again, in chapter 12, we have again a similar statement. The triumphal entry is, is taking place, and we're told there, Uh, that as the disciples are contemplating all this, verse 16 of chapter 12, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. But now, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and in particular, he's telling Peter, you do not understand now, but afterward you will. So you may not completely comprehend it, but there will be a time when you understand fully what is going on here. Well, the question is, after what? After Jesus' death, after his glorification, after his ascension, there's something in this foot washing that is pointing to the suffering that will take place on the cross. See, foot washing is not just about, oh, let me come and wash your feet and make us all feel nice and good. The foot washing that Jesus is doing has much more significant symbolism than maybe simply going through a ritual. He's teaching his disciples something, and therefore he's teaching us something. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, the way of love is the way of service. He's saying to his disciples, the way of love is also the way of suffering and sacrifice. That any service I give to you comes as a result of what is going to take place on the cross. Any suffering and any sacrifice that I go through is born out of my love for you. So the way of love 
is the way of service. The way of love is also the way of suffering and sacrifice. Something must take place for washing to be effective. And that something is Christ's death on the cross that pays the penalty through his blood so that man might become clean, holy in God's sight. Isaiah puts it this way. We began our services with this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So to have that uh, sins that are described as white as snow or like wool means that we have been totally cleansed. It means that through Christ and because of Christ, we are made holy. And holiness is not partial. You can't be a little bit holy. You've got to be completely holy. Now, friends, let me just pause here. That's why you and I cannot work our way to heaven. We can't just like say, okay, well, today I'm a little bit more holy than I was before. That's not how God reveals it in his word. Your holiness is a one-time event. When God, in his sovereignty, declares you righteous, and you are holy, because your holiness is seen by virtue of the fact that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's a one-time event. It's a one-time experience, you might want to say, that we go through. It's not partial. But Peter, verse 8, persists. Peter said to them, you shall never wash, or said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Hmm. What's Jesus getting at there? The idea of sharing has two purposes. First of all, it points to our union with Christ. If you don't have any share with me, what's he talking about there? To share with Jesus is to participate completely with what he has come to do. It describes the fullness of our belief. We're not half-hearted in belief that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the, the one who is the ultimate sacrifice. We believe it completely and totally. He either is or he isn't. We share with him that we believe that he is the Christ. We truly believe that he is who he says that he is. We share with him that he is our master. So we embrace in, in totality that we are united with him, that we are joined with him, that we agree with him, that he is who he says he is, and we agree with who he says he is and what he has come to do. When we share with Christ, we are saying, you have us completely. We are all in. We know, that we know you and you know us. Or using the expression, we are your sheep and you hear our voice. And we hear your voice. See, all these pictures, images of what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? Now, it speaks then of sharing this, this union with Christ, but it also describes the cleansing that we have in Christ. Because of our union, we are also cleansed. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we have been made clean. And this cleansing is not partial, but it is complete. And so, when Jesus speaks to Peter, Peter responds in the extreme opposite. Notice what it says, verse 9. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And the idea there is, you don't just wash my feet, wash me all over. 
Now, Peter was, in my mind, still thinking on the physical level. But his statement was theologically accurate. Interesting, again, as we've gone through John's Gospel, how many statements have we heard from people who maybe not completely understood what they're saying, but what they were saying actually taught great truth, was prophetic truth. And here's Peter speaking about maybe something he doesn't completely understand, but it is so absolutely true. He wasn't necessarily speaking about spiritual truths, but about physical realities, physical washing. But Jesus, in this statement, uh, and in his act here, is speaking about, I want to say, not the physical, but he's using the physical to describe the spiritual. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Let's just think of this from a physical perspective. Someone's going to a dinner party in Judea at that point in time. What do they do? Well, they take a bath, okay? Going to a special dinner party, I'm going to take a bath and put on some nice clothes. You're clean. You put your shoes on, which are kind of like sandal-type shoes, and you start walking out on the streets. By the time you get to your destination, you're still clean, essentially, except for your what? Your feet. So you get in. That host exercises hospitality, you're reclining at the table, the servants come around, they wash your feet, and you're clean once again. You don't need to take a whole other bath, you just need to wash off your feet. That's the reality, daily, cultural experience, right? So he's using that as a picture here to describe something spiritual. So what's the spiritual reality that's taking place here? The spiritual reality here is this. Those who have come to Jesus believing with genuine faith are completely clean. And if they are completely clean, all they need to do now is to wash their feet. Conversion is like taking a bath. Though Jesus is sacrificed on the cross, or through his sacrifice on the cross, we now are made clean through uh, through his shed blood. Though our sins were as scarlet, they would be white as snow. But we still live our lives where the dust of sin is present. So we need to wash off that sin through ongoing confession and repentance. This is a daily thing. And sometimes it's many times during the day you're confessing your sin. That's the idea. You're clean. As God looks down at you, at one of his children, because you've embraced him as Lord and Savior, you are clean. But with the dust of sin, the sin that you still commit, you're washing it off through confession. All right? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's a, that's a passage that's talking about confession. It's talking about this. This is a book that's written to believers. This is who we are. We, we are in this, this, this picture here of, of, of washing our feet to get that, that, that dirt, the, the, the residual stuff that we pick up along the way. So uh, this is the confidence, friends, that we have from Jesus. We were dirty, living our lives in the mire of sin, and now we are clean. And that is what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to invite you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 and following. 1 Corinthians 6. In verse 9 and following. Again, I'm sure you are aware of this passage, but it describes the same scenario that Jesus is, is really challenging Peter with here and challenging us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that word there, next to homosexuality, the word practice, the idea is, this is all, these, all these descriptions here are, are, are describing a, a practice and a habit of behavior that is rooted in sin, that is rooted in the world, that is just part of the nature of these people. This is who they were. Now, that being true, as we continue reading, and such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So the reality, friends, is that what Jesus is saying here is true and will always remain true that you and I, who've embraced him as Lord and Savior, who have believed in him, we are washed. There are three words here that are used to describe our condition all take place at the same time and are a one-time event. Hear this, you were washed. That is your new life of regeneration. You were washed. You're not still being washed, you were washed. Boom. Secondly, you were sanctified. In that washing, you were declared holy and that holiness now is the basis of your ongoing behavior. Your new behavior, your new orientation now is one that is rooted in holiness because that's who you are. When God looks down at your life, he looks at you through the lens of Christ and what he has done on the cross, and you are completely and totally holy. That doesn't change if you're a child of God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Now your standing with God or before God has changed. You have been declared righteous. You are just in his sight. All these three things are taking place at the same time. I'm, I'm going further in this because I want us to see here how beautiful this picture is of the fact that we are cleansed, that we are washed. Now, that being true, we still have to deal with the sin before us, the sin that happened today. We go to passages like this and say, okay, that gives me confidence that when I sin, that I am still clean eternally as far as my salvation is concerned, but when I sin today, it's like this dust that is getting on my feet. And something has to happen with that dust of sin that's on my feet. It interferes now with my relationship with God. Maybe another way to look at it is this. It's kind of like marriage. You know, when you say, I do, you're committing for life. All right, just because you have an argument once you're married doesn't mean that that marriage is undone. Sadly, in our country, it is much more easily undone, isn't it? But marriage is a lifetime thing. That's what it's supposed to be. And there are going to be struggles once you're there, but one of the things that drives you to keep plugging away is that before God, you committed yourself before this person to love them, to keep them, to cherish them in good times and bad. It just happens to be bad right now. You don't 
flip-flop simply because it's rough, right? So the reality is true now that you're a child of God. It's, it's like this, you know, you've been, you're, you're cleansed. You're totally cleansed. Your position, your, your character, um, who you are, your, your basis is all because of who God is and what he has done in us. But we still sin, and so there's something we need to do with that sin, and we need to confess that sin. Let's put it another way here. Our union with Christ requires us um, taking a one-time bath. Our communion with Christ requires ongoing foot washing. And by foot washing, that means the, the, the cleansing, the, the, the confession, the, the dealing with the, the daily sins that are before. So our union with Christ is a one-time thing that requires a one-time bath. But our communion, our ongoing relationship, our ongoing pursuit toward being like his son Jesus Christ requires ongoing foot washing. And if we get those two things mixed up, we get our relationship with God mixed up and there's great discouragement that can take place because we don't understand the one from the other. So this is the life that is found only in Jesus. It's only because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross that we have the ability to have the confidence of our position in him and therefore also our communion with him in such a way that we can deal with the ongoing sin that we struggle with. All of our sin's been paid for, but now the question is what happens with the sin that I have now and its effects in my life? It comes through confession and he wants us to wash it off through that confession and that restoration with him along the way. All right? Notice now, as we continue on in, um, in John 13, he says, and you are clean, this is verse 10, but not every one of you. And John gives us a little kind of a parenthetical understanding of what's going on. For he knew who was about to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So John makes sure that we see the theme of betrayal in this story of foot washing so we've seen here the love that comes from Jesus. We've seen the life that is found in Jesus. But now these two realities are foundational for the lesson that Jesus now teaches his disciples and then ultimately us, and that is the living that is done for Jesus. How should I live then based on these truths that Jesus is revealing to us? And this is now where, where Jesus, having, having taken off his garment and washed the disciples' feet, now gets his garment back and, 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 and reestablishes himself around the table. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Now to grasp what Jesus is asking and why he's asking that question, it's helpful for us to glean a little bit from Luke's account of the discussion taking place in the upper room where all this is happening. There's a number of discussions that took place in the upper room, a number of events that took place in the upper room. But in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, verse 24, it tells us there that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here they are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They were fighting to see who would get closest to the throne on the right hand or the left but none of them wanted to pick up a towel. Well, you ask yourself the question. If those who are, might want to say, lower on the totem pole, 
are not they the ones that are supposed to wash the feet of the master? Absolutely. Relationship of master-disciple. The disciples are supposed to be the ones that are running around serving and are, in a sense, the, the slaves to that master. But here they are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. None of them wants to take up a towel, but Jesus takes up the towel and he serves them. The cross was only a few hours away. Its shadow would soon cover Jerusalem. And again, the disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest, but none of them wants to pick up the towel and wash Jesus' feet. So Jesus is saying to them a number of things. Let me just rattle off a few things that he's saying here. Now that I have washed your feet, now that I've connected my love and your cleansing to the ultimate sacrifice of the cross. Now that I have shown you how I have removed my heavenly garments to uh, condescend to this earth and go to suffer on the cross, I want to ask you a question. And here's the question. Do you understand the way of love is the way of service? We talked about this already. Do you understand that the way of love is also the way of suffering? He's pressing home now the whole reason why he has gone through this foot washing with them. It really isn't so that their physical feet can be physically clean. Although that might be helpful as far as eating the food around the table. He's driving home a spiritual attitude, a spiritual reality. That the greatest among you must be as one who serves. Well, if they're all arguing about who's the greatest... What a wonderful picture this is about what it means to be great. Those that are up need to come down. You think you're up there? The best way to be up there is to come down. So Jesus continues, again, verse 13 and following. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. In other words, I'm, I'm the master here. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I'm willing to condescend to serve you, then you who are peers, it shouldn't be that difficult for you to condescend and serve one another. I mean, think about what Jesus has done in his condescension, in his lowering of himself. He's from heaven. He removed his heavenly garments, came to this earth, took on the form of man, and more than that, humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For I have given you, he says, verse 15, an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This master-servant relationship, this, this, um, uh, this master-messenger relationship, if I send you, some, Jesus says, if I send you with a message, you don't become more important than me. You just take the message. But in the context of foot washing here, Jesus is driving home this principle of humility, this principle of service that is so necessary for all of his children. So to be the greatest is to serve like Jesus. This is the clarion call, friends, of all of God's children to live like Jesus. Now a little pause, a little caution here. This is not just some moral thing 
where we say, okay, I just want to be like Jesus and I want to wash people's feet. If I can just serve people, there it is. No, this is a, this is a, a, a service that has in its view the cross. It is born out of the love that comes out of the cross. It recognizes that it's the cross that ultimately is what people need. It's not just simply saying, I want to serve you, and that's the end of it. Jesus' instruction here is not just simply wash one another's feet. It is follow my example. His love, so vast, so extensive, so grand, is showered on his disciples now, and our love, rooted in the gospel because we know who God is and what he's called us to, now can be fleshed out in acts of mercy, in acts of humility, in acts of service to one another. They're not just acts of service independent of the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And that's why we can say, oh, you know, I just want to be like Jesus. I want to serve. And it can be void of the gospel. And what happens then is we become morally religious and we end up doing ceremonial stuff for the wrong purposes. His motivation was love, a genuine love that flowed through the cross to his people. Now, there's a really, really well-known story about a man by the name of Samuel Logan Brengel that is so appropriate for our time here. In 1878, when William Booth's Salvation Army had just been so named, men from all over the world began going um, to enlist. And one man who had once dreamed of himself being a bishop within his denomination decided that he was going to venture from his pastorate, a very elitist pastorate, across the Atlantic from America to England to enlist. He was a Methodist pastor, and his name was Samuel Logan Brengel. Now, ultimately, he would be the American version of William Booth. But when he got there, William Booth was not too impressed. He accepted him grudgingly, reluctantly. And Booth said to Brengel, you've been your own boss too long. And in order to instill humility into Brengle, he sent him to work cleaning the boots of other trainees. And Brengle said to himself, I have followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to black boots? Then almost as in a vision, the picture of Jesus came before his eyes of him washing the disciples' feet. And so he, before God, said this, Lord, you wash their feet, I will blacken their boots. He resigned himself to recognize that leadership also is a willingness to serve. And it was a huge lesson that he needed to learn. So that's why Jesus is saying, verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, if I have blackened your boots, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. So if we're to see ourselves as followers of Christ, there must be humble service in our lives. We must be people of the towel. We must be people who are willing to wash one another's feet. We must be people who are willing to blacken the boots of others. Now what does that look like? 
What does it look like to blacken the boots of others? Well, there's a couple of ways I want us to look at this. First of all, I want us to look at what's going on in that upper room. I want you to think about what Jesus is doing and to whom he is doing it. He's blackening the boots of his disciples. Let's just think through the disciples. There's Nathaniel. John chapter 1, we were introduced to him. Here is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. I mean, he is a true Israelite who loves the things of the Word of God. He loves his people. Certainly wouldn't be hard to blacken his boots. Then there's Andrew. What do you know about Andrew? He just always seems to be bringing people to Jesus, right? I mean, he is an evangelist. He is just talking about God bringing people to see Jesus. And I don't think we would have any difficulty blackening his boots. Saying, hey, I want to come alongside him, and I'm willing to serve him. Then there's James and John, Mark chapter 10. We want to be on the right and on the left. They're self-seeking men. Now, all this has taken place prior to this foot washing. So Jesus is now ah, foot washing. Yeah, he's, he's washing um, Nathaniel. He's washing Andrew. We, yeah, we get that. James and John, kind of selfish, self-seeking men. What about Peter? I mean, Peter's like the black and white guy, right? And one moment, he's like, yeah, I'll die for you. And then the next moment, we find him denying Jesus. I mean, he's just, I mean, he, he just gives up. And yet Jesus, knowing that he was going to do that, is blackening his boots. Then, of course, in our passage, the disciple that is screaming at us is Judas. Judas, who is described as the one who betrays, he's described as the thief who takes out of the money bags, he is described as a devil, and Jesus is willing to blacken his boots. So friends, the, the, the shocking thing, I mean, first of all, about this picture is that Jesus would humble himself and wash the feet of the disciples. But what's more shocking here is that Jesus would be washing the feet of the one who would betray him. And just think about that. Jesus coming along and, you know, he's just done with James and John. He's just like, you know, these guys, all they want to do is be, they, they just don't get it, they don't get it. And then he comes up and he looks up and it's Judas. And he's looking into his eyes as he's washing his feet, knowing that Judas is going to walk out of this room and he is going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And yet he continues to wash. He continues to serve. He continues to humble himself. My friends, there's a lesson there for us. What kind of love would serve a person who was about to betray you? What kind of love suffers in order to go to a cross on our behalf? What kind of love endures mocking and scorn and a crown of thorns? Only this kind of love that Jesus gives. And it's the same kind of love that drives us to blacken the boots of others. So the question for us then is where do we begin? We looked at the disciples, but let's look in the context of our own homes. How do we blacken the feet of, or blacken the boots, I should say, of the people in our homes? Let's look at our families. Let's look at your dinner table. 
If you ever have kids, you ever feel like banging your head against the wall? I mean, having a family is just, everything's just always smooth and perfect and everyone's just so happy to see each other, hugging and kissing all over the place. Is that right? Well, we wish it was that way, but that isn't reality. Being a family, parenting, takes work. When conflict arises and children are disobeying, that still doesn't remove our responsibility to blacken the boots of one another. When heartaches are felt and discouragement is settling in for all sorts of different reasons, we keep on serving one another. When your plans are disrupted by others' inconsideration, he's saying, follow my example, blacken their boots. When you must exercise a consequence for sinful behavior as a parent, are you doing that with a heart of humility, a heart of service for God and for them? When you are spent and you don't have any more energy to give, are you still willing to blacken the boots of those who are in your household? Remember the cross. Remember Christ's suffering. Remember how he served us then and how his service then is serving us now. The cross is a past reality with ongoing effects in our lives. We look back to the cross and we say, because of what Jesus did, I now can live. And I can live in a certain way. I can live in a way that he has called me to live. I can leave, live a life of, of honor and praise and glory for who he is in such a way that it is evidenced by my service to others. And in particular, to one another. So it begins in our homes. What about loving your spouse, even when he or she is unlovely, forgetful, angry, or impatient? Can you blacken their boots? Will you continue to serve? Will you continue to wash, continue to love, continue to give? Find some boots and begin to blacken them. And it continues not only there, then also into the body of Christ. There's all sorts of different ways that we are blacking in one another's boots, but here are some examples. When we hear of other people's needs, we talked about the, the city as kind of a, a way that we communicate. And there have been times when people have put needs on the city, and people are responding, and when they respond and follow through to meet that need, guess what they're doing? They're blackening one another's boots. Because one day you'll put up a need on the city, and someone will come along and help you. When we give in the offering plate that provides for the kinds of things that we need in order to be a church. When we teach our children. When we set up or tear down our facility. When you and I are called upon to help, but we don't really feel like it. Ever been there? It's home group tonight. I mean, you want to go, but there's a party that's like, oh, oh, you know, this couch is really, really nice, right? Yeah, you know, so you just kind of got to, you got to fight through. Why, why am I participating in a home group anyway? Is it all about me, or is my presence helping serve others? See, 
Your participation here is not just all about, well, we're just all worshipers gathering for worship. I understand that's true. But your worship here, your presence here, also affects others. That's why Scripture says, singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Wait a second. It's not all about the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's the singing to, it doesn't say God, to one another. There's something about being together as the body of Christ that is helpful to one another, that is serving one another. The whole concept of spiritual gifts is in the context of affecting and equipping the body of Christ. Being the body, different parts of the body, working together with those spiritual gifts for the edification and the benefit of the body of Christ. So when we're gathered together, we're blackening one another's boots by virtue of the area that God has gifted us, or whatever the need might be, whether you're in the leadership, whether you're someone that picks up a chair on a Sunday morning, whatever it might be, we're all working together, washing each other's feet figuratively, this attitude of service. Now, this is a call for us to love like Jesus. This is a call for us to serve like Jesus. This is a call for us to suffer like Jesus. But I want us to, to, to end here today with a couple of reality checks that are flowing out of this passage that are just necessary for us to see. If we're going to blacken the boots of each other, of one another, there's some things that we need to realize. First of all, we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared because serving leads to suffering. Right? That's what happened with Jesus. Don't be surprised that the way of your service paves the way for the way of suffering. No servant is greater than his master. Serving will lead ultimately and will likely lead to suffering. Now, friends, have you ever served someone? You know, you, you've seen a need. You said, I'm going to go help and I'm going to go do this. And you go and you do it. And it just seems like the person you're serving is not grateful or they're taking advantage of you, or maybe even they say something about your service that is not kind. So you run the risk. Now, in Jesus' case, the service meant the suffering of the cross. And it's possible that when you serve, you will actually be mocked and scorned for your service, which is a form of suffering. It will and potentially can lead to suffering. So be prepared. Reality check. You're going to wash someone's feet. You're probably going to get wet. Right? Get a little dust on you. It means you take off your garments, you serve, and then you put your garments back on because God has called you to whatever he's called you to. All right? Just using that imagery there. Be prepared. Secondly, be encouraged. Serving also leads to blessing. Now, what kind of blessing are we talking about? We're not talking about winning the lotto here. We're not talking about, you know, somehow serving someone, and they say, ah, oh, you know, I'm so glad you came over here. Let me give you $1,000 just for coming and cooking me this meal. No, we're not talking about that. There is a blessing that is a divine blessing that is showered on God's children because we are faithful to do what God has called us to do. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. All right? Being faithful to God will always bring blessing. 
But it's the kind of blessing that comes from God, not the kind of blessing that we would want tangible blessing. It can be the blessing of health. It can be the blessing of, of clarity of thinking. It can be the blessing of making a decision. It can be the blessing of harmony in the home. It could be all sorts of different blessings. It can be the blessing of insight into his word. All sorts of different ways that blessing can flesh out. But if we are faithful to this challenge here to wash one another's feet, we can be encouraged because this divine blessing is the result of being faithful. Lord, help us now as we consider the model that you've given us, Lord. Not simply a model of washing feet or a ceremony, Lord, that you want us to go through, but the the model of an attitude that you have, that we should have toward one another. And Lord, help us to be mindful that that our attitude and our doing good to one another, our serving one another, Lord, is not independent of your gospel, Lord. It is because of your gospel, Lord, that we would consider serving, that we would consider suffering. It's because of what you've done on the cross. And Lord, we are compelled to love you because of what you've done on the cross, but Lord, we are also compelled to love your body, and then ultimately, Lord, that overflows into loving others who are not part of your body. Lord, help us to wrap our hands around this picture and to see the spiritual realities, the fact that we are washed, we are holy, we are clean if we have you as our Lord and Savior. That doesn't change. But Lord, as we go on through our lives, Lord, there's going to be times when we need to wash our feet off. Thank you, Lord, for that beautiful picture and reminder, Lord, that you are always faithful to us. And that one sin that we might feel has brought us low, Lord, is simply a sin of dust on the feet of our spiritual lives, Lord, because you have totally cleansed us. And Lord, help us to encourage one another that we would be washing one another's feet, helping us see our sin and wash off of that sin in our lives too. Lord, there's so much for us to grasp and and chew on here. Lord, would you allow us to be your people that take seriously this picture, this commandment, this instruction to wash one another's feet. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.